From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, fixing IOL problems at ASCRS 2018. You expect with the EDOF Technosymphony is you get J1, J2 intermediate. It's excellent at that range, and, and maybe J3, J4, and sometimes better at near. So she clearly didn't have that uh, intermediate near, and that would explain you know why she's unhappy. First this. I travel a lot. It's one of the perks of the work I do. As fantastic as Hangzhou or Jaipur or Barcelona are, I'm always amazed at how beautiful my own country is. Nowhere is this more in evidence than in Park City, Utah. Words truly fail. That's why I'm so happy that ASCRS holds its surgical summit in Park City. Join me in this collegial, informal, and highly educational event in one of the most beautiful places on earth. Go to surgicalsummit.iworld.org. That's surgical summit, one word, dot iworld, dot org. I'll see you on the slopes. Despite our best efforts and really impressive technology, problems can arise with intraocular lenses post-implantation. Sometimes these problems are refractive, sometimes rotational, but in either case, the approach is to first diagnose and then to treat. Diagnosis can be difficult, Sometimes it's simply hard to know what the problem is. Daniel Chang presents an interesting case in which the crux was establishing the appropriate diagnosis. David Harton discusses other sorts of intraocular lens problems and how they should be addressed. These interviews were recorded at the 2018 annual meeting of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery in Washington, D.C. I'm here with Daniel Chang, clinical committee member for ASCRS. Daniel, you presented an, an interesting case, um, which is, well, actually, you know, rather than my saying what the case is, tell me everything and I have very specific questions for you. Sure, absolutely. So it was a, a 67-year-old woman that was referred to me. She had previous Technosymphony lens implant in uh, her right eye. She was a previous minus three myope, and she was happy with her distance, but unhappy with her intermediate and near vision. So the question is why, why that's the case. So um, you, you, she has good distance vision. Her uh, refraction that she came to you with, I mean, the knowledge that you had was that she was basically plano. Am I right? So there were multiple previous refractions by the referring doctor. There's, there's multiple biometry done, intraoperative wavefront aberrometry was done. So there was a lot of uh, good workup that was performed. But even post-op, multiple refractions by, I think it was a number of different doctors showed she was essentially plano. Um, so the question is, if there's a refractive plano, there's good distance, why isn't there that intermediate or near with an EDOF or the Technosymphony lens? And she, she had uh, a mild PCO or something. Uh, do you, do the story was as complicated as the story can, can there, be. There, there's some other coloring factors from a personality standpoint and professional standpoint, but the, from a, from a, to simplify the case, she did have a little bit of PCO, and the question was, is it the PCO that's contributing? Should we do a YAG? Uh, is there something else, or perhaps the lens isn't working? You know, it's giving distance, but it's, for some reason, maybe there's a manufacturing defect that frequently comes into people's minds, so it's referred to me for a second opinion. And, and what happened? So... There's again, there's a pretty colorful story to it. My clinic was really late. I saw her. I didn't really have a whole lot of information, um, but uh, ended up giving her some time to neuroadapt. 
I reviewed the previous notes, I saw what the refraction was, because of some technical reasons I wasn't able to get a good refraction actually the first day I saw her. Did some OCT of the Mac, make sure everything, macula, make sure everything was okay. She was still on her stairway, so I let her taper off, give her some time to recover from that, let her neuroadapt, and then see her back in about three weeks. She came back in about three weeks, symptoms were about the same. Her distance vision was about 20, 25, you know, 20, 30 range. Her intermediate was like a J5, and her near is around a J9. So you expect with the EDOF Technosymphony, as you get J1, J2 intermediate, it's excellent at that range, and and maybe J3, J4, and sometimes better at near. So she clearly didn't have that uh, intermediate near, and that would explain, you know, why she's unhappy. Also being a low myope. You know, maybe there, there's a component of she's just not happy because it doesn't give enough. Um, but the big difference is on this visit, we did a very solid plus, plus, push plus refraction, which showed that she was about three quarters of a diopter hyperopic. So that, that, that's really, really interesting. And it, it, it's, um, it's, it's funny. It's an error that plays up the advantage of the extended depth of focus lens because if, if it had been a, a different sort of lens and the patient were plus 0.75, they would have been in an area where the modulation transfer function curve drops off and the vision would have been much worse. But because the modulation transfer function curve for the EDOF lens is so broad there, even if the patient is fairly substantially hyperopic, they're still going to have very, very good distance vision. Right. So, so with an extended depth of focus lens, is when you end up hyperopic, you're still on the flat part of the defocus curve. So your distance vision is actually still pretty good. So 2025, um, there's some a little bit of stigmatism, so maybe it dropped a little bit, but still she was quite satisfied with that. Um, the problem is, of course, if you left shift your defocus curve is you lose the near vision, which is the symptoms that she had. Yeah, really, really interesting. So uh, you you had you had diagnosed her. Now uh, was it was it diagnosed adios? So what what did you what did you do with her? Well, be, because of all the uh, uh, social situations, she was uh, she's actually from the southeast. Went to L.A. and had surgery. Came up two hours to where I was at Bakersfield. I, I highly encourage her to go back to uh, her referring surgeon, who's a fantastic surgeon, to do uh, the surgery. The consideration was we knew what the problem was. It was kind of up to them whether they want to do it. Uh, Iowa exchange or, or post-op refractive, uh, like a PRK or something to enhance it. But we knew what the problem was. It was simply refractive error. Um, as it turned out, she had her cataract surgery done in her left eye. And she had about a two to three plus nucleosclerosis. There was definitely decreased vision. Uh, after she had the left eye done, they aimed actually with a, a monofocal lens for near. And she was actually quite happy. Her right eye stayed around 20-25 uncorrected. She essentially was happy with the monovision. And that's kind of where she has been several months since follow-up. So what if that didn't happen, Daniel? So here's the story. She falls in love with uh, you. I don't know why she wouldn't. I would never see another doctor after seeing you. Okay? And she says, I did a lot of reading about multifocal lenses. And you know what? A multifocal is really what I want. She's your patient. What are you going to do for her? So I think that could be a possibility. So there's a number of patients, maybe more broadly as patients, when I've done uh, an EDOF lens in the first eye, I tend to do dominant eye first. And they're not quite happy with the near vision. Let's just say we we hit the distance, she's gotten the range, she's happy. So frequently I will put a multifocal or a low-add multifocal, like a plus 325, in the contralateral eye to give better near vision. Because that gives a focal point right around uh, 17 inches or so, which which gives stronger functional reading than what the EDOF lens gets. And again, I always take into consideration, I tell them, look, you're not going to have the near focus you've had 
for your whole life because you were a minus three, but you're going to have awesome distance like you've never had and as long as you can remember. And, and generally, patients are pretty happy with that. I counsel all my patients with eat-off lenses beforehand is you, you may still need cheaters, just low-powered ones, plus one, one and a half for your really s small up-close vision. But it's those low myopes I'm very careful with. Would you uh, consider doing a PRK to the, to, the, to the first eye to sort of, you know, push that curve a little bit off to the right? It kind of depends on the patient's satisfaction. So it's, we could easily do that in that range, about three-quarters of a diopter of hyperopia. Um, I tend to like to, if it's, if I can demonstrate to the patient that we can correct the first eye, a lot of times they're willing to go ahead and do the second eye because sometimes you hit a home run with the second eye and they're happy and I think that's what happened in this yeah. case. But uh, uh, some patients are just nervous. They really want to have that first eye fixed all the way till it's optimized before letting me touch the second eye. Sometimes I'll demonstrate with a, a temporary pair of glasses or even a contact lens to wear for a few days just to demonstrate, look, we, we can fix this. This is not unexpected. Um, I also prep them that you might eventually need a YAG laser capsulotomy, so they're not like, what, this didn't work, and now you're doing this. So I prep them for the potential course. I give them the options, and depending on their comfort level, um, will help drive which way I approach that. So that's a great, great case, and it, uh, and it, and it emphasizes the uh, need uh, postoperatively with these patients when you're manifesting them to really push plus. Yeah, really, really, really great case, Danny. I want to thank, thank you, you for, for, for bringing this, this, this to us. It's lovely. Uh, and as always, for being so very generous with your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm here with David Harden. David, you have a wonderful talk. Um, dealing with uh, a, a malpositioned torque lens. And, you know, the, the only cataract surgeon who doesn't have to deal with this is the surgeon who doesn't put in torque lenses because it, it inevitably happens. These are the two things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about what I can do to minimize the likelihood that's going to happen, and then I want to talk about uh, w what my approach should be when I actually have to take someone back to the OR. Sure. Well, it's, uh, you're right. It's, uh, it's an extremely important uh, issue because you want to get you know, high-quality vision, but you also now are dealing with the nuances of, of astigmatic correction. And so with the toric implant, I, you know, I think one of the things is uh, the proper measurement preoperatively uh, so that you can uh, reduce the astigmatism as much as possible is obviously key. And so that involves using calculators that somehow take into consideration the bactericity, making sure that you have regular astigmatism. Some of the, the patients that I see that are unhappy with toric IOLs, even if they're in a spot that you would think they would work just fine, they, they had a regular astigmatism before the clinical procedure, before the cataract surgery, and that's why it, they don't work. They're, they're like a pair of glasses. They, they correct regular astigmatism, not irregular astigmatism. And, and so that, that preoperative process can help you decide where to align that, that uh, toric implant uh, during the surgery and know that it has a really high likelihood of success. But like you mentioned, uh, there's probably 5 to 10% of patients with some residual astigmatism. And sometimes that's from uh, calculation errors. Sometimes that's from uh, the implant being positioned in a uh, axis that's not ideal for the eye, whether it was placed there uh, on the non-ideal axis or whether it was placed on the ideal axis and rotated or even sometimes if the if the implant the capsular bag can sometimes capture the the one of the edges of the implant and shift one side of the toric implant so slightly decentered but also rotated because if one uh, haptic stays in the right spot that you put it in the other one moves from that capsular bag um, you know that's uh, that, that can create the same type of problem 
And so the things during the surgery itself uh, is uh, being patient to make sure the implant opens uh, uh, fully, to make sure that it's stable in the eye, uh, make sure that there's good uh, anterior capsular overlap for the implant, so, so that tries to reduce the tendency to have that issue where the anterior posterior leaflets fuse and shift the implant and because usually it'll shift one side and not not both sides evenly um, and uh, make sure you get all the viscoelastic out from behind the uh, IOL so it fully seats on the on the uh, implant or on the capsular bag and then in some patients where you perceive during the surgery that there appears to be some instability, using a capsular tension ring can be extremely helpful in creating a little bit more um, uh, you know, pinch of those peripheral haptics in the periphery, especially important in the very high myope because these implants have, you know, all the ranges of sizes have the same uh, diameter. So there's a little bit more space in the, in the uh, high myope with a bigger eye, basically. Uh, or post vitrectomy or any other things where the, the capsular, uh, peripheral capsular instability or zonular laxity might be a little bit less. So you can, you can in a sense, kind of crowd that section uh, in the periphery to, to reduce the tendency for movement of that implant. Um, and so those are some of the things that I think are, are important uh, intraoperatively. Uh, I guess one of the other things I forgot to mention maybe is, is making sure that your wound is, is, that you, is fairly standard. So you don't want some of your incisions to be real central, some not, because that can create a lot of uh, astigmatism that, that, especially if it's real central, uh, it can create asymmetric astigmatism that creates a problem. So, so one of the main things that, that I uh, talked about in this, in this talk here at uh, ASCRS is that, um, that if you have a malpositioned implant, what you need to do is try to, or, or an implant that doesn't match your astigmatism uh, goals, what you have to do is decide how, how can I manage that. Sometimes that's by rotation of the implant. Sometimes that needs to be by exchange of the implant, and sometimes it's a situation where you're really better off with laser vision correction to handle that residual astigmatism uh, because rotation or exchange either has a, a, you know, a higher complication rate where you're concerned about it um, or, there's, or, or really it doesn't, isn't effective. And so we found there's several uh, online tools. Uh, John Birdall and I developed one that is helpful for taking the refractive information post-operatively uh, and you're knowing the tericity of the implant, uh, then being able to determine what would happen if you rotated the implant. Um, because in, in some of these cases, it doesn't help to rotate it, uh, either because there's, there's um, you know, too much myopia, hyperopia, where yeah, an exchange might be, off, yeah. might be a, an issue, or, or you need more tericity because you have, you know, your corneal curvature, mm -hmm. either anterior or posterior, are, are more of an issue. Uh, again, making sure that it's regular astigmatism because if there's some asymmetry of the astigmatism where the refraction is somewhat variable, again, that's where either topographic or wavefront-guided uh, PRK or LASIK, probably usually PRK in the cataract patient, uh, would be more useful. And then again, assessing that, that your risk of rotation exchange, and that's really more looking at the zonular uh, stability because you don't want to rotate it, tear the zonules, have to take it out and put in an iris or sclerofixated uh, uh, IOL. Yes, uh, I, I, I'm, 
I'm sorry that you just went went over all of this. You you answered every single follow-up question. I know you'll come up with a no, couple no, that other was, ones because you've got that uh, was wonderful. So, so. so okay, so uh, I, I I have um, I have two. One of which I, I have I have feelings about, and one of which I don't. Uh, let's deal with the one about which I have I have feelings first. So. Um, let's say that you had a, a myopic patient, a very large eye, you didn't put in a capsular tension ring. I do not routinely put them in in uh, torque cases. Um, and indeed the lens rotated and sufficiently that you have to take the patient back to the OR and put it back in place. Do you at that second surgery, when you re-rotate the lens, put a CTR in then? Um, good, excellent question. I do not also, I don't uh, routinely put in a uh, CTR in toric cases. I think there are some surgeons that do, but, but in most cases, I mean, our, the results in the clinical trials without, uh, without putting capsular tension ring, rings in were excellent. Uh, many surgeons aren't, you know, don't routinely put in capsular tension rings. So I don't think that there's a, a need to do that in, in the typical average case. But I do assess those, the, during the surgery itself, assess those onular stability or the, the, the tendency to rotate of that implant during the surgery to decide do I need to add one. Uh, but definitely, if I go, if I need to go back to the OR to rotate the implant, then I do always insert a capsular tension ring, not only just in the high myope, but in anybody else that I'm rotating the the implant. And there's two reasons for that. One is that, like we were talking about in the high myope, the uh, the the, the uh, sulcus and the capsular bag dimensions are larger, and so I think that that adds some extra bulk in the periphery that reduces re-rotation. But the other thing, depending on when you're rotating the, the implant, if the implant has, say, fused in one section and you, you then rotate it to a new section, in general, there'll still be little tiny adhesions in the peripheral capsule. And I always make sure I rotate the implant one or two times to try to break those. But I think that, that it, there's some tendency for that bag to be smaller in the direction where the implant was not present to right. begin with. And this, this helps to more fully expand it because that's the, that's the area you wanted to get it stuck in. Uh, so I do routinely put it in when I rotate it. Plus, that I think there are probably little, they're not clinically, you can't clinically visualize them, but I suspect there's little tiny zonular instabilities that are created just through that extra manipulation uh, of rotating that implant and going back a second Yeah, well, that's time, probably so. true. Um, David Chang makes, uh, made, made the uh, uh, point once that it, it's probably beneficial in toric cases to, at the end of the case, leave the patient with a fairly low pressure because um, it, it, the, the idea is, is that if the anterior chamber pressure is high, then the, the bag is ballooned out and maybe that gives a little bit more uh, wiggle room for the uh, lens, which is something that you don't want. Is this, what, what, do, you, so, do you manage them any, any differently? So, I, so I, I, I think of this a little bit different. I think the, the concept that, uh, that David is making is, is very valid. But I'm not sure that it's actually the intraocular pressure that's the issue. I think that it's the physiologic position of the lens iris diaphragm. So, so for example, in a high myope, it's very easy when you're inflating the case at the end of the, uh, or inflating the eye at the end of the surgery to over deepen your anterior chamber so that it's no longer physiologic. And so that's because, uh, you know, during the surgery, there's there tends to be this uh, reverse pupillary uh, block type phenomenon where the chamber is very, very deep. 
but in but then what happens is over the first few few hours postoperatively that chamber shallows back up again, and that lens iris diaphragm returns to its physiologic position. So one of the things that you can't really, I don't know, assess this uh, preoperatively when you're looking at the eye, but you get a sense for how deep that anterior chamber should be if that natural lens was not there, you know, because you've got the natural lens kind of shallowing the chamber somewhat. Uh, so, so actually at the end of those cases, it, uh, again, post-vitrectomized eyes, high myopes are much more likely to have that as the issue. I still keep the pressure you know, 25 or something like that. But what I do is I'll lift up or push down on the capsular bag, uh, the anterior leaflet of the bag, or lift up a little bit on the iris while I'm refilling the eye to make sure that that chamber depth is physiologic and the uh, implants in the proper rotation. So I, so I don't think of it as an intraocular pressure issue. I think of it as a physiologic lens iris diaphragm position. That's a great point. It's a great pearl too. David, I want to thank you for, for uh, taking what sounds like a, a simple topic and making it enormously complicated. No, I'm teasing. Really, no, giving giving really, really good, good, good guidance. These these cases don't come up that frequently, but they absolutely do come up. Uh, and I want to thank you as always for being so very generous with your time with us today. Yeah, well, and Josh, thank you for uh, for spending the time. I think this uh, is a very important topic, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Daniel Chang comes to us from Bakersfield, California. David Harton hails from Bloomington, Minnesota. Ask questions of Dr. Chang, Dr. Harton, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.